Well, good evening. My name is Ben Milner, and I'm one of the pastors here. And as you can tell, we're going through the prophet, the great prophet Isaiah. We're going to continue that sermon series in the fall. So in the, uh, in the summer, we go 1 through 39, which is where all scholars break Isaiah into two parts. And then in the fall, we're going to go 40 um, through 66. And obviously, it's a really long book, and uh, so we're not going to be able to cover every verse. Uh, we're just covering the ones that I like, the ones that please me. <laughs> not really. These are the ones that I think are especially significant verses. And uh, this verse 15 might not seem uh, particularly significant, but um, it's, a, it's a verse that has meant a lot to me over the years. It says, uh, in repentance and rest is your salvation. Sometimes it can be translated returning. It's very similar, though. The concept of repentance is like turning, turning back to God. So I've always heard it said, in repentance and rest is your salvation, and in quietness and trust is your strength. And as a young pastor, um, I was um, kind of raised up in the culture of our sister church, Redeemer Presbyterian Church, which was very highly influenced by a number of uh, pastors including Jack Miller, uh, Rick Downs, Hunter Dockery, Clyde Godwin. And if you know any of those guys, this is a verse that I heard about all the time. Uh, they would talk um, in prayer meetings, Bible studies, counseling sessions. could be a staff meeting. could be um, you know, a presbytery meeting where we all gather from different regions. All the pastors in the presbytery seem to know about this verse. So I would be fretting over something, uh, maybe how... Uh, small the church was or how bad I felt my sermon was that week or um, how weak I felt as a leader. And they'd always say to me, and it really, it's always, they all had deep voices. And they'd say, brother, brother, in repentance and rest is your salvation and in quietness and trust is your strength. And they're always reminding me that um, salvation is not about what I do. Uh, strength is not about what you do. It's not about your accomplishments. It's not about your devotional um, discipline. It's not about your spiritual health. That salvation and strength are being quiet and resting and repenting and trusting the Lord. And in Isaiah's day, uh, it helps to know the context that, that the nation of Israel, this little tiny nation situated between two massive empires, this uh, little nation of Israel was going through a lot of the same things that I was going through. Namely, they were, they were fretting over how small their military was. They were fretting over how big Assyria was becoming. Assyria being um, this mega empire to their northeast. And they were fretting about how they're going to make an alliance with Egypt to their southwest. And that alliance would protect them from, from Assyria. So they're, they're nervous. They're thinking, I've got to save myself. I've got to make myself strong, as we all do. And Isaiah says, you know, no, not in the kingdom. That's the way the empire works. But in the kingdom of God, um, in repentance and rest is your salvation. The gods of the nations see um, doing things and uh, being strong in your own might, in your own power. That's the way they see um, salvation. But Isaiah is saying that real salvation in the kingdom of God is, is being quiet before God, being still. And letting God save you. And so in the empire, kind of the, the symbol would be the, the great eagle of Rome. Um, the symbol would be um, the, 
the, the Nazi symbol. Uh, could be even the American eagle. Think about all the symbols of the British Empire. All the symbols down through the ages of different empires, the Russian Empire, the Soviet Empire. Um, again and again and again, they have these different symbols of strength and power and they're in control and everything's okay. But what would be the symbol, if you think about the kingdom of God, which has always been very different from the world. We don't have one up here, but um, it's not the stars and stripes with the eagle on top. The symbol of the kingdom of God is, uh, is a, of course, a cross. Is, is that the, the most powerful, the strongest being in the universe died on a cross. That's the, that's the kingdom of God. It's so different from the empire. So I want to look at these two types of salvation and strength. The, the, this this uh, thing I do all the time in my preaching of uh, the kingdom versus the empire. If this is your first time here, uh, if you keep coming back, you're going to hear this a lot. Because I think it's a major theme in the Bible. The kingdom of God as a rebel force in this great empire. And it does come somewhat from Star Wars, but it also truly does come. I promise you it's really there in the Bible. I'm not importing that into the Bible. So first of all, the empire. Um, in 722 BC, the Assyrian empire was like this growing hurricane to the northeast of Israel. And they were, they were rightly terrified as they saw it coming down and gathering steam as it conquered one person, one people group after another, and incorporated them into their army. And they just got bigger and bigger. So imagine a hurricane slowly coming down from the northeast. And then they look to their southwest, and there's another empire, the Egyptian empire, which, of course, if you know the history of Israel, they're the ones who had enslaved them for 400 years. But they're tempted to look down to Egypt to make a treaty with them so as to fend off the Assyrians. And the kings of Israel in Isaiah's day keep um, trying to make these treaties with the people around them because that's where they think their, sal their salvation is going to come from. That's where they think their strength is going to be in these treaties. And so in verse 16, it's just kind of like Isaiah's putting in the mouth of the people what they're saying to themselves. They're saying to themselves, we will flee on horses. They're saying to themselves, we will ride upon swift steeds. And that's what they're expecting as far as what kind of salvation they're going to get uh, from Egypt. Because Egypt was famous for its cavalry. Uh, it's the same cavalry of the chariots that came after Israel at the Red Sea. And so they're hoping that the Egyptian army will ride in and save the dead. And uh, so basically she's feeling the pressure of the empire up here. And that pressure is causing her to turn and look to this empire down here. But it's the same kind of schemes in both cases. And I think this pattern of being pushed by one aspect of the empire to another aspect of the empire, uh, that's not just about Israel. It's just kind of a type that happens. It's a pattern that you see, uh, certainly in our own lives, uh, in the lives of nations of all types. Certainly in my life. Uh, for me, when I graduated from college, I went and taught uh, high school. And so the Assyrian Empire was like this boss that I had, this, the principal of the high school, the other teachers, my students. And it was just incredible fear. It was, like, it was like a hurricane, and I was terrified. And so I would turn, when I got home, I would turn to the, the video game, and I would turn to bagels, and that was my um, Egyptian Empire to push back against the Assyrian Empire. And of course, if you know much about advertising, this is the way ads work, is they make you feel uh, very inadequate in one way. They make you feel like you're ugly. Um, they make you feel like 
your house is, is horrible and way too small and uh, out of date, or that your phone is, is pathetic, that it's way behind the times, or your, your clothes, your clothes, your furniture in your house, that you're always restless about how things are going. You're, you know, if you have a minivan, like a white uh, Honda 1996 Odyssey, then you feel like you're really stupid, that you're driving this clunker around town. And the Empire says, you know, what are you doing? Uh, you're making a terrible name for yourselves. So it, it then promises you, of course, the salvation, which is the, the new body that you could have, and the new house that you could have, the new phone you could have, the new clothes and the new car. And uh, the, the whole advertising industry is to make you feel that way. It's kind of pressure from one part of the empire driving you to another part of the empire for rescue. And uh, it's, it's deeper than just ads. If you're, if you're not fit enough, then there's this workout routine that the empire offers you. And if you're not smart enough, then here's a degree we can give you from, you know, from this place for this big name recognition. If you're not popular enough, then we can introduce you to a social scene over here that will increase your, um, your popularity. If you're not creative enough, then... You can watch these, these art movies or hear some bands that are um, kind of obscure and they're edgy. And so you can listen to this or watch these. And if you're not spiritual enough, this is where it gets really dangerous, then here are a set of practices that you can keep. And then by doing that, God will love you more. And you'll be spiritually cool or you'll be spiritually fit. And um, this isn't particular to 21st century America, although I think it is especially bad here. But... But I would say it's the empire, and so it's always been there. In every, every civilization, the, the salvation of the empire is celebrated. And in every civilization, the strength of the empire is applauded. And so it's constant compare and contrast and anxiety. There's enormous self-evaluation going on all the time, anxiety, more anxiety. And uh, nowadays, when I get anxious, it's not, it's not the video games or the bagels so much for me anymore. But I often turn to cleaning. I don't know if any of you uh, obsessively clean, but I'm not talking about a normal kind of healthy cleaning. But um, when I feel out of control, then I turn to this kind of frantic cleaning where it's very hard to interrupt me. And if I get interrupted, I just become infuriated. Um, got my headphones on. I'm locked in, you know, with a certain podcast or a book on tape. And I get out of breath and kind of sweating. And one person told me this very close to me. I won't tell you her name, but she said, uh, you know, Ben, you have a rage for order, she said. Luckily, she didn't call it OCD. I don't think it is necessarily OCD, but she says, you know, this happens. You have a rage for order. And uh, it comes across maybe as a virtue in some ways, but it's really not. It's one of those schemes. Um, It doesn't have to be cleaning for you. It could be uh, work. Uh, A friend of mine was telling me on Saturday that he often turns to work when he gets overwhelmed with the anxiety of the empire is too much and there's too many things going on and too many things he's got to coordinate and so he'll just go into his uh his room and open up the computer and he'll just start working he can check out that way and you can feel like he's doing something by checking out from the family but basically he's disengaging and this is just what i'm saying this just happens all the time with the empire as we look to these schemes like israel for salvation and strength and isaiah is mocking that he's saying this does not work this is foolish And so in verse 12, um, he talks about trusting in oppression. And a lot of scholars don't like that translation. They like to say deception is more like it. 
Isaiah is saying, Israel, your schemes for salvation and strength, they are, it's trusting in what is deceptive. It doesn't really help you. Uh, and then he uses the word perverse, meaning it's intentionally, uh, knowingly, you're doing something intentionally stupid. That's what perverse means. It's perverse for you to be doing it. The empire's promise of salvation. In this case, Egypt is not what you think it is. It's not strong enough. It's going to end up uh, really hurting you to turn to Egypt. And then in verse 7, the very first verse we looked at, uh, Egypt, Egypt's health, uh, help, Egypt's help is worthless and empty. And then he compares it to a dragon who can't move. It says Rahab who sits still, but literally Rahab was this gigantic dragon, um, this frightening dragon of ancient lore and uh, terrifying dragon of strength. And then sit still means basically just unable to move or um, unable to rise or kind of impotent. So this is a terrifying looking dragon. This thing you turn to in the empire looks like it's going to come in and rescue you. But Isaiah is saying, yeah, it looks strong, but it's, it's really just, it's like a, a dragon that's toothless or a toothless hound. It makes, it makes you think it's going to be strong when it's offering itself to you, but it doesn't, it doesn't come through. In fact, it makes you even more anxious. Look at verse 17. When, when one Assyrian comes, you're going to be so anxious when they get there that a thousand of you will flee. Now that's hyperbole. That doesn't literally happen, but you see the point. He's saying you're going to get so anxious and so worked up by these empire schemes that one little Assyrian warrior is going to come and you're just going to all flee. The whole city is just going to desert. At the threat of five, you will flee. And then in verse 17 at the end, it will leave you barren as well, like a flagstaff on a mountain. It's shorn, that's, that's empty, like a mountain that's just, your whole army is now the surrender flag. And the reason that is, is because all the efforts we have to save ourselves that the empire tells us to save ourselves with do not work. And even worse than not working, they actually, um, they trick you and they deceive you. They become perverse because they make you forget about the only real salvation, which is the grace of God, which is just resting in God, which is just turning to God and letting him save you. And it's so hard to do it. It sounds so easy. Just turn to God, but it's so hard to um, just sit there and be still and know that God is God is it's so hard that Pascal, this great philosopher who's quoted on the front of your bulletin, he said that, that if a human could just sit there quietly in the presence of God and was able to do that, then all the miseries of humanity would disappear. That if we could just sit there and rest in God's presence. So that's uh, the striving of the empire. Now I want to look at the, uh, the rest offered by the kingdom, the kingdom of God. And uh, the context of verse 15 is, is really crucial. If you look up a little farther, verse 9, you see that God is saying that um, the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, is saying in returning and rest is your salvation in the face of this flagrant disobedience of his people. And so verse 9 says that they are a rebellious people. In other words, they... They intentionally don't want to have anything to do with God. This, according to the scriptures, is the condition of humans. It's not that they are um, born into a bad home or that they have bad genes or that uh, we weren't um, raised correctly, but that there is this inherent rebelliousness. They are lying children. They are children unwilling to hear 
the instruction of the Lord. And so that's the context. And so the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, Isaiah loves the word the Holy One of Israel. That phrase is used in Isaiah more than any other book of the Bible, again and again and again, the Holy One of Israel. Because he met God in Isaiah 6 in this vision of the temple of the Holy One. And so he has such a high view of God that it, it disturbs Isaiah deeply that God is being rejected, that these children are not willing to hear him, that they're lying. So imagine your own child, if you're a parent, um, imagine your own child. I'm trying, I tried to imagine this, and it wasn't that hard this week. Where in verse 10, they basically are saying, uh, I don't want you to talk to me about what you think is right. And I only want you to tell me what I want to hear. Imagine as a parent that your teenage child told you that. Or in verse 11, uh, I don't want to even hear your name anymore, Dad. I, I never want to hear that name again. That's basically what they're saying to God. And this is the sense in which they're, they're rebellious. Um, when uh, Rosabelle or, or Cooper ever talks to me in a way like that, then I can kind of feel, you know, they can get away with a lot of stuff. They can do a lot of stupid things. But when that kind of disrespect happens, that's when my kind of muscles start to tighten and my jaw, I can feel it clenching and my, I just cannot hold back from saying certain things. Uh, usually an expletive is in that sentence that comes, but I usually also end up promising this epic punishment that I'm never going to carry out. It's a huge pitfall in parenting. But the king of the universe says, in repentance and rest is your salvation. That's why I say the context is so amazing. He, he doesn't say that to people who are really nice to him or who kind of snugly. Children who come up to him and hug him and kiss him goodnight. This is, this is a father with children who hate him. And he's telling them, in repentance and rest is your salvation. And that's, that, this is what is so different about the kingdom of God. It's so different that we can almost not believe it. But the king of the kingdom moves around with a different kind of strength, a different kind of salvation than we know anything about. And it's the strength to radically forgive his children. To show this mercy that Isaiah is talking about. The mercy of God. And I think what he's basically saying when he says, In repentance and rest is your salvation, is that I am going to save you without any initiation on your part. You don't, you don't begin by coming to me. I'm not just opening my arms to you and just seeing who's going to come and who's not. No, I'm going to track you down. I'm going to come after rebellious people. I'm going to pursue you. I'm going to wear you down with grace so that even as you try to run from me, I am going to smother you with my love and my presence. That's the gracious God that we have. And it doesn't just happen once. In verse 15, it says, but you were unwilling. After that beautiful statement, he says, but even that, even in offering you that, you still rejected me. And so running from God doesn't end at a person's conversion. Um, if you become a believer, as I did when I was 21, that doesn't mean from that point on you're just going to always want to be with God. Quite the contrary. There's still a very strong spirit of rebellion that basically makes us not want to spend a lot of time with God, if we're honest. Certainly it comes and goes. But even as a Christian, um, even as a Christian, the, the grace of God and the the quietness and, and trust and strength is often a, a last resort, isn't it? We go through all of our schemes. We kind of tick them off, all the empire schemes of salvation. You try to do it yourself first. And then 10 phone calls and 20 emails and 30 texts later, you're like, maybe we should go with a nuclear option. And maybe, maybe finally the Hail Mary pass. Let's, uh, 
why don't we pray to God about this? But it takes us that long to actually turn to prayer. And then even if somebody you know, offers that, then often there's a reluctance for anyone to actually start praying. It's just that hard to rest. It's that hard to trust and to be quiet in God's presence. And yet the king is undeterred. And he says, I'm still coming to save you. As far as you run, I'm going to run farther. As hard as you run, I'm going to run harder. You just sit quietly and rest. And it's precisely because his grace is so aggressive that that's how repentance and rest and quietness and trust can be our strength. That, that nature of God to be um, so much in pursuit of his children is what allows it to be true for us to be saved through repentance and rest. I saw a movie on Friday, and then uh, I saw it again on Saturday because it was so good. I planned to watch it Saturday just to see a few scenes, but I just, we just kept watching. It was actually Margie and Cooper and me, we watched this together. So the movie's called The Hunt for the Wilder People. And um, I wonder if any of you have seen that movie. It was one of the best, uh, I saw a hand, one of the best, I think, 10 movies of 2016, according to some website I looked at. And so uh, the movie's about a 13-year-old boy named Ricky Baker, set in New Zealand. He goes to live with uh, a foster family. The social worker tells the family, you know, he's a bit of a bad egg, really. He's, uh, this, and he go, she goes through this litany of things that he does wrong, all these horrible things. But right when Ricky Baker steps out of the car, the, the foster mom, Bella, her name is Bella, she comes running up to Ricky Baker, and she says, finally, you're here. I'm Bella. Call me auntie. And she runs up and hugs him, and just for a long time is just sitting there hugging him. And then uh, he kind of pulls back, and then he pulls out his phone, and he starts just kind of like doing like this. And then he walks around the house, gets back into the car, and is ready to drive back away with a social worker. But um, they convince him to stay, reluctantly. And then the first night he's there, he runs away. So he runs off on his own, um, but it's out in the middle of the bush in New Zealand, so he kind of gets lost, and he wakes up. And there's Bella standing over Ricky, smiling, um, and she says, geez, boy, it's a miracle we found you. You made it all of 200 meters. And then she says, uh, come on, let's have breakfast. Then you can run away again. And again and again and again, he keeps running away. And she keeps loving him and loving him and loving him. And on his birthday, she writes a song for him. And she has a little Casio keyboard. And she plays this, the Ricky Baker song. Um, once rejected, now accepted, Ricky Baker, Ricky Baker. She makes up this crazy little song. She plays it for him. She makes him a cake. She gives him a dog. And that night, as she's putting him to sleep, she says, are you going to run away again tonight? And he says, not sure. And then she says, it's cool with me if you do. Just make sure you come back for breakfast. And what she wants from him in that movie is not for him to do chores around the house uh, it's not for him to start cooking breakfast himself and taking care of the dogs. You know, as you know, what she wants is for him to just let her hug him and uh, let her kiss him and shower him with grace. So she wants what God wants from Israel and from you, which is returning to him and resting in him and finding uh, quietness and trust in your soul. Now, someone might say, that is way too easy. If religion's like that, I don't want to have anything to do with it because that's passive. 
And uh, a word that a lot of people like to use is antinomian. In other words, there, there's no law in that. What, what, what you're saying is not true discipleship because true discipleship is really hard and terrible. And that doesn't sound like what true discipleship is. And I would just say, but I think that's the hardest thing that anyone could do. And I think Hebrews would agree with me. Uh, Hebrews says in chapter 4, verse 9, let us make every effort to enter into God's rest. Isn't that an interesting paradox? Let us make every effort to be still and know that God is God. And then the author of Hebrews defines rest as ceasing from striving for good works. That's how the author defines rest, is to stop striving to prove yourself to God or create a resume that makes you spiritually impressive to God. In a uh, blog that's called Escape to Reality, I found um, this quote from Paul Ellis, who keeps that blog. If you don't believe God wants to bless you, if you don't believe that God already has blessed you, then you're going to work and never rest. And you're going to exhaust yourself trying to get what he has already given If you are trying instead of trusting, you're going to be anxious and insecure. You're going to always wonder, have I done enough? And 800 years before Isaiah wrote this, Moses said something similar to the children of Israel. They were there on the shores of the Red Sea. They had just escaped from the Egyptian Empire. They looked back over the horizon, and the Egyptian Empire was coming at them. The cavalry was was, um, coming up over the horizon. And they were, it was moving steadily towards the Israelites. And in Exodus 14.10, the people say, the people feared greatly and they cried to the Lord, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? This is after God has saved them again and again and again, plague after plague on the Egyptians. And they say, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Is it not this what we said to you in Egypt? In other words, we told you this would happen, God. Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. And then Moses turns to the people and basically says, in repentance and rest is your salvation and quietness and trust is your strength. He says, stand firm, fear not, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. And not a single Israelite kills a single Egyptian in the ensuing story. The Israelites just walk through the Red Sea, and the Egyptians come after them, and the Red Sea closes. And that's how salvation works, that God does all the dirty work. He takes care of all your problems, all your enemies, all the hate in your life, all the malice that is against you. There's a classic children's book called The Runaway Bunny. The Runaway Bunny, I'm sure some of the children right now that are in here have read that. Their parents have falling asleep reading that to them. And The Runaway Bunny um, is one of those little kind of crazy books that's made of cardboard. It's so short that the pages are like made of this kind of cardboard material. And here's how it goes. There was once a little bunny who wanted to run away. So he said to his mother, I'm running away. If you run away, said the mother, I will run after you. If you run after me, said the boy, I will become a fish and swim away from you. If you become a fish and swim away from me, then I will become a fisherman and fish for you. The boy says, if you become a fisherman and fish for me, then I am going to become a rock on a mountain high above you. The 
mother says, if you become a rock on a mountain high above me, then I'm going to become a mountain climber and climb to you. And you know how these children's books happen? They just go on and on. The adults like, I know what's going to happen here. But he becomes a crocus, which is a little flower. She becomes a hidden, uh, she becomes a gardener to take care of the crocus. Then he becomes a, a bird who's going to fly away. And then she becomes, obviously, a tree in which the bird's going to land. And uh, this is kind of morbid, but I was thinking that if Isaiah had written The Runaway Bunny, it would be pretty gruesome, first of all, because you know Isaiah. And the boy would have said something in the end like, if you become a tree, I'm going to kill myself and hate you forever. Now, that didn't make the runaway bunny. But the mother would say, if you kill yourself and hate me forever, I'm going to die in your place so that you're going to love me one day and know how much I love you. And as morbid as that is, this is a lot more morbid. Both terrible and wonderful, isn't it? It's shocking when you think about it in that context. But on the night that he was betrayed uh, by the human race, God Almighty, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken.